But I also knew that this effort would be you know, a massive undertaking. This isn't, we're not talking about let's write a single blog post and sort of do a call to action and then be done with it. Um, this is like, you know, a massive change in the way that we think about how to do incident response. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started coming crypto eight years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the February 27th, 2024 episode of Unchained. Polkadot is a leading layer zero blockchain with over 2,000 developers, and the Polkadot 2.0 upgrade will be a massive accelerator for the ecosystem, making it faster, more secure, and adaptable. Perfect for GameFi and DeFi to build, grow, and scale. Join the community at polkadot.network slash ecosystem slash community. Streamline your DeFi with VaultCraft, the ultimate on-chain toolkit for deploying custom automated DeFi products on any EVM chain. Join VaultCraft's referral program, unite with the community, and supercharge your crypto. Details on vaultcraft.io. Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained Daily Newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Today's guest is Sam CZ's son, CEO of Security Alliance, AKA SEAL, and head of security at Paradigm. Welcome, Sam. Hi. Let's start with your history in crypto. You are a famed white hat hacker. And now, you know, as we mentioned, you have launched this new organization, but tell us your origin story. Yeah. So I got into crypto, it feels like quite a few years ago. The long and short of it is basically a friend knew that I was into security and had been nagging me about what we now know uh, are the parody multisig hacks. At the time, of course, I didn't know anything about it. And I sort of just brushed them off for months on end. I was like, I've got better things to do than this cryptocurrency nonsense. You know, thanks, thanks for letting me know, but I'm going to just keep doing my thing. And eventually one day, you know, as we all do, I was just sitting there watching YouTube. I wish I could tell you specifically what Vyoto I was watching, but that, you know, will be lost forever to the sands of time. And the YouTube employees who are watching my account. Um, but I was watching YouTube and I was like, I'm being so unproductive right now. I'm like sloshing my chair. There's got to be something better I could be doing. And then I thought, well, hey, like, let's just look into this cryptocurrency thing. In the worst case, you know, we spend a few hours and wait, we waste some time. But in the best case, we might learn something new. And it turns out that, you know, over the past couple of years, I've, I've learned so many new things, um, in the space and it's been such a, such a wonderful journey. And so before that, you say that you were interested in security, but why in particular have you taken the path of white hat hacking? That's a really good question. I think it's probably largely how I was raised, specifically how I'm like, not quite sure, but, you know, ever since I was young, the, this idea is, you know, doing the right thing and sort of, I, I, I wouldn't go so far as to call it justice because I think in the real world, you know, we're, we're not living in some sort of superhero film, but I've always had a very stubborn, uh, you know, sense of right and wrong. 
sometimes the frustration of people I worked with. Uh, and so I, I think it was pretty natural to translate that to sort of um, trying to do my best for what I think is right for crypto and crypto security. And so how did you, you know, come to be known for the rescues that you have been doing? And then how did that translate into a job at Paradigm? Well, I think what, what happened there was basically I had started with finding these critical bugs. Um, and of course, when you first start, no one knows who you are. And so uh, you have to sort of convince them that you're not just another spammer reporting fake bugs. And then once you build some reputation, then people want to work with you and they want to hear your advice and they want to make sure that they're doing the right thing when they're faced with these critical points. And so slowly you just get looped into more and more of these rescue situations where, I mean, it, it sort of is that, that it's this flywheel effect that all, all of us nature capitalists love to talk about. Um, and eventually, I guess, you know, I, I landed on Paradigm's radar. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what specifically must have caught their attention, but something did. And then they reached out, I think around the same time that they hired Georgios. Uh, and it was all, it was all just paradigm from there. And so of those early um, saves and rescues that you did, like what are some of the more memorable ones? I mean, I have to talk about the, the Dark Forest one. Um, that one's a two-parter, right? The first part was when uh, Dan Robinson, uh, the head of research, and Georgios again, uh, CTO Paradigm, when they reached out uh, about this very small amount by today's standards, right? I think it was like less than 50K. Um, but it was some, some amount of tokens that was stuck in a Uniswap B2 pool where anyone could burn the tokens and redeem the underlying collateral. Uh, and I remember telling them that I had seen these, these, you know, generic frontrunners, as we now call them, lurching in the mempool. Uh, and so they should, they should really be careful. And I think under time pressure and other circumstances, you know, obviously the rescue didn't work out, but that sort of set the stage for the, the famous Ethereum stack forest post, which I think, it, you know, in hindsight, it was worth it. And then uh, a few months later, I, I followed up with that, um, with escaping the dark forest. And that was, you know, by far one of the most stressful uh, rescue situations that I'd been in. I think if I remember correctly, it was a combination of the team being anonymous. So it was very hard for us to confirm, you know, who we should even disclose to in the first place. The bug being so wide open in the sense that there really weren't many uh, requirements necessary. You didn't need to have a lot of collateral. You didn't need to have any sort of special insights. It was just sort of sitting right there in the open. Uh, and also the amount being, you know, I think it was around $10 billion, which is at the time, again, a very high uh, a very high number, right? It's all of these things together just made that one of the most memorable worms for me, I think. And so at that time when you were like less well-known, when you would reach out to people in that kind of situation, like, did they take you seriously? What was it like trying to do this when you were not well-known? I think before my CRX bud, I definitely had some trouble connecting with people. Um, and you know, in Web2, it's so much more different because the, the bug bounty space is just so competitive um, and also so filled with low-quality reports that you know, it, it, it is very hard to reach certain companies at times. But you know, I'm not going to pretend that I, I've had it you know, as rough as a lot of other people in the space because I did sort of you know, start off with just this very high-severity bug in Zorax. And so you know, right off the bat, I think... My public debut was one where people were like, "Uh, this guy knows what he's doing, and you know if he DMs, if he DMs us, uh, we should have a listen." So, how do you monitor for vulnerabilities? I heard you say on another podcast that you have alerts set up. Like, are there particular websites where you set that up, or like, how are are you running nodes, or how do you do that monitoring? That was a while ago. Um, the, the landscape has really changed over time. Um, I remember back. You know, a few years ago when I could feasibly sort of monitor the entire space for myself, I could sort of watch all the new deployments, watch all the new contracts being verified and have a really good grasp of what was happening across the entire ecosystem. Nowadays, that's very much not the case. Uh, just the fact that there's multiple L1s and LTEs today, um, you know, is, is a major departure from previously where it is mainly just a, just a theorem activity. Uh, and so to answer your question, I actually don't 
do much monitoring myself anymore. I leave it to the companies that have spun up specifically for that purpose. And, you know, the, the countless amounts of uh, in-now requests that I actually, um, maybe a good tangent or a, a good, uh, redirect, but, you know, previously I used to get all these DMs from people, you know, asking for help about their smart contracts getting hacked or their wallets getting drained or some other security question. And, you know, I knew that a lot of my friends could also answer these questions for help uh, if I wasn't available. But it was hard getting the word out that, you know, hey, instead of Sam, here's the list of 30 other people you should try if he doesn't respond, right? That's not very good. Um, that's not very ergonomic. And so that that was one of the motivations behind CO911, which actually today now does handle quite a lot of these cases that you know normally would have landed in my DMs. And of course, I still jump in and help, but it's been a great way to load balance, you know, the the deluge of incidents across all these people who uh, are equally capable. Okay. Yeah. We'll talk about that in a moment. I do want to ask you a little bit more about um, how you work. One thing that I was wondering is why you, why, why do you think that you're so good at recognizing vulnerabilities? Like, is there something about your personality that you think allows you to see things that others can't see or, or think of things other people haven't thought of? I mean, I think, Part of it must be intrinsic uh, because I'm not quite sure. And I, I've asked myself this numerous times. I'm not quite sure how I would teach someone to find security vulnerabilities beyond walking them through a list of things to check for. Uh, so I think there is something intrinsic about being able to reason through these complex scenarios and to come up with these scenarios, right? Um, to figure out what potential attack vectors are. At the same time, I do think it's necessary to essentially credit luck a bit in this. Um, I think way too many times people try to pass off, you know, being lucky in the right place at the right time and having to read over the right file uh, in the right function and noticing a bug with, you know, skill. And I think it, it, it is necessary to disclaim that you know, part of it is being able to reason through these issues, but part of it is also, you know, being early to the code base or uh, hitting upon the right file or other circumstances like that. And before you were hired at Paradigm, how were you making money from these exploits? Or, sorry, catching the exploits? <laughs> I was going to say, I don't exploit things here. Um, but <laughs> all good. Uh, yeah, before I joined Paradigm, I was working at Trail of Bits, and so I was both getting paid there and also, you know, much more active in the bug bounty scene. And so, you know, if, if you found a critical bug, you would get uh, 50, 100K or so. Um, and so, you know, to be clear, like, very good money um, for both at the time and also for like, the average person, right? So no complaints. All right. So I asked on X, formerly known as Twitter, what I should ask you. And some people told me to ask you if you were going to change your handle because Sam, meaning Sam Pinkman-Fried and CZ are no longer a big part of crypto. Actually, we'll put a question mark on the CZ bit. But um, so that made me think, oh, do I not know that his name is based on some mashup of Sam Pinkman-Fried's name and CZ's name? And then, you know, I would assume the son is like Justin's son. But I actually don't know that that is the origin of your name. So is that... Is that the origin of, of your handle or or does it have nothing to do with those three people? Well, you know, the zematic does become dispelled if I reveal its origins. Um, that's what I was told by the the wizard who um, granted me these powers. And so I don't <laughs> think I can say, but if anyone has suggestions for what I should change my handle to, I guess, DM me. <laughs> Uh, I was going to say, like, to be clear, my handle wasn't necessarily based on it, but I do think it, it is funny um, how things turned out. And I mean, hey, if I somehow discovered, you know, like the, the crypto equivalent of Death Note, well, one, Lawrence is going to be very upset that he didn't, you know, somehow discover it first. But uh, two, yeah, I mean, whatever it takes to, to you know, do good, I guess. Um, though I've just become an enemy protagonist. That's not good. Okay. Okay. Because yeah, all three of those were sort of like main characters in crypto at different points. Um, so yeah, it's just interesting that 
uh, it could be um, seen as a reference to them. All right. So now let's talk about your recent big news. You just launched the Security Alliance. Tell us what, what it is. Yeah. So we launched the Security Alliance uh, a few, or I guess, you know, a, a week ago or so. Um, and it's been in the works for over a year now. The origin story is basically, well, it, it really started with the, the Nomad uh, hack. And as I mentioned in my thread, um, it was, yeah, at the time, one of the even more stressful worms, mostly because it was very painful sitting there watching these funds get trained uh, and not being able to do anything. And remind us why it was that people couldn't do anything? Yes. So the the main reason was basically, you know, for, for the white hats, we... You know, we want to do things by the book. We want to do things correctly. And so usually what that entails is getting permission and making sure that, you know, you've done all your due diligence and making sure that you're well prepared for the exploit or for, you know, performing the exploit, but obviously with their intention to work twin funds. Um, but in the case of the Nomad incident, uh, not only was the volume just super stressful and to be completely honest, I think the idea of even asking for permission just totally slipped my mind. It just, it was so chaotic by the time that, you know, we really understood the bug. Um, because people had been copy-pasting the payload themselves that we were sort of already focused on trying to, you know, prevent the bug. Externally, outside of the war room, you know, a lot of people didn't even have the ability to contact the Nomad team. And so for them, there was no way they could have gotten permission in the first place. And so, yeah, put together, it just sort of said back into this idea for White Hats that like, if there's an incident that's happening, it's probably not in your best interest to get involved, whether it's because as before, you won't get permission from the team, we can't get permission from the team, uh, or you know, what happens if you try to perform the rescue, but, you know, you, it's your off day or you, you're hit into too soon or you, you make some sort of mistake, right? And then now where does the liability fall, right? Is it, uh, like, is it your responsibility because now you're directly involved in losing access to all its funds or, you know, is it check between you and the team or like what happens there, right? And so it's just, it's just always been extremely ambiguous for white hats. To the point where I generally don't really consider uh, getting involved directly at all. I almost always prefer to advise the team, right? I'll tell the team, here's what the bug is, here's what you need to do next, but I'm not going to hit that button for you. And after the Nomad hack, my thought process was basically, is there any way we can change this? Because it's been years since I started thinking that way, and it feels like you know the, the ecosystem has moved on. And if we're going to prevent these sorts of hacks in the future, if we ever, you know, arrive at one of these incidents again, we need more tools to empower the people that, you know, know what they're doing and can help save the day. But I also knew that this effort would be, you know, a massive undertaking. This isn't, we're not talking about let's write a single blog post and sort of do a call to action and then be done with it. Um, this is like, you know, a massive change in the way that we think about how to do incident response. And, you know, I wanted to make sure that we were doing it right. And I wanted to make sure that people were on board with what we were trying to do. And so from there, I realized that there's actually a lot of stuff that I wanted to do in this regard where it seems like a really good idea. And if executed, it would probably do you know, a huge amount of good for the security ecosystem, but also required just a lot of collaboration, a lot of sign-on from different parties. And I realized there was no structure in place to do that. And so from there, you know, we created this, the security alliance, which is, yeah, the, the solution to all those problems that I just described. So let's say that the security alliance gets pinged for a vulnerability that's been identified. Um, I guess there's probably two scenarios we could discuss. One would be that there's a hack that's in action. Um, you know, I don't know whatever reason, but for some reason, maybe they couldn't take all the funds right away, but people can see that this is out there. Maybe other people are copying and stealing extra funds. So how would you handle that? And then the other scenario would be you've identified something. Nobody seems to know about it yet. 
um, you need to move the funds safely. So walk us through how SEAL would, would approach both of those scenarios. Yeah. So in the former scenario where, you know, someone has identified or is exporting a bug, you know, in, in the previous world before SEAL, that, that news would have made it around to a handful of people. It would have slowly circulated around the security community over time as people remembered other people to reach out to you. You know, I myself, during incidents, over the course of hours, will be like, ah, wait, here's another person that we should reach out to. And now all these people are in one room, right? And so before that news would have slowly circulated, as more and more people were brought into the loop, we would have identified other protocols that might have been at risk, um, which... You know, again, it's a very slow process and we would have resolved the incident. It just would have been much slower than we would for saying. Today, when someone reports uh, a critical bug, either one that they've discovered or one that's being exploited through CO911, all the people uh, on the CO911 team see it immediately. Um, if we remove that delay, principle slowly bring other people into a loop. And one of our first priorities is to identify which uh, forts of that protocol might be affected. And, you know, as we slowly resolve more and more incidents, we refine this workflow so that uh, over time, you know, we've evolved from um, actually not prioritizing forks to now, you know, prioritizing forks very heavily, making sure that everyone understands the, the rules of disclosure and that we should keep everything under wraps until we've resolved the incident, uh, you know, refining our uh, incident response playbook, really just making this process much more optimized. And that's something that we just didn't have before SEAL uh, Memo 1. And then as for the case where we find a bug internally, um, well, again, you know, before if I find something critical, my choices are to go to the protocol if I knew who they are, or if I didn't, you know, DM a handful of people that I trust and hope that they did. And again, it's, it's this sort of web uh, uh, connections that sort of spins out. And today... I know that everyone in CLO and what I can trust. Uh, and actually, in fact, everyone at the security lines I can trust. And so I can just drop a message in those group chats and ask, hey, does anyone know this protocol? Here's some details. Really just be much more open than I could in other you know, security communities. We have the security telegram, for example, which is where people used to go to drop this, these sorts of questions. But that telegram group has you know, 2,000 and 3,000 e-voiding by now. And it's almost a guarantee that if you drop a message in there saying, Hey, does anyone have a contact at some protocol? That's just a giant, you know, uh, giant strobe light for hackers to tell and look at that protocol really quickly before the bug gets fixed. Oh, interesting. So black hat hackers are monitoring those groups in order to figure out where they can exploit a vulnerability and get at it before the white hackers remove the funds. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. The group is public and public access by design because we want to facilitate, you know, people interested in security uh, in having conversations with each other, in discussing, you know, research, discussing latest news, whatever. But as a side effect, it does mean that the group is so big now that um, it really isn't safe for disclosing or even hinting at potential vulnerabilities and protocols because it's almost guaranteed that there's at least one black hat hacker in there who's just watching and waiting to see if someone's going to make that mistake. And if they do, that's that's a really clear sign for where they should go to find their next block, right? And so we want to avoid that. Okay, so um, you mentioned the SEAL 911 hotline. So basically, that's this Telegram group. So let's say that I work at some project and I'm realizing that there's a vulnerability and funds need to be moved or whatever needs to happen in order to prevent that from being exploited. So I contact the 911, um, SEAL 911, which is this telegram group. Um, I imagine it pings, you know, some number of people. How many people are in that group? How is it structured? Is it just whoever's up start wor starts working on it? or And then how do you even like vet the members of that? Yeah, so let me try to answer as many of those as I remember. Uh, one, how does it ping the group? The, the soon I want one by is what meetup people communicate with. And that bot sends messages into a group chat that we're all in. The structure is very flat. In other words, everyone is in the same group chat. We all see all the tickets. And it, it is a first come first serve basis. Um, and again, keep in mind that everyone here is volunteers with um, full-time jobs at their home. And so sometimes it does take, you know, anywhere from a few minutes to a few hours for someone to respond. But 
depending on what you come in with, like if you come in with a critical bug um, that's being exploited, people will see that and people will respond pretty quickly. As far as how to vet people, oh, sorry. Um, I guess first, who's in it? We have a we have a public list um, of the members on GitHub. The bot actually links you to it when you are about to open a ticket. Because one of the things that we really value is transparency and um, you know establishing that high amount of trust in the system. And so we want to make sure that people know exactly who is going to be seeing their reports. And if any of them are people that they're not comfortable sharing with, uh, they know ahead of time. Um, and as far as vetting from new livers, that's a pretty informal process. It's basically people that I or someone else in the group trust. And then I haven't had to yet, but I have reserved the right to veto someone is I think that they're just really untrustworthy, which hasn't happened yet, but you know, my. And how many members are there total that get hit for the SEAL 911 hotline? We're about 40 people or so currently. Okay. Um, and then I'm sure there's, well, so you've, you've been live for just, I guess, a really short period. Has anybody called it yet? We've actually been live since um, August of last year. Uh, like I said, SEAL has been operating in stealth for uh, over a year now. And so, you know, we, we've launched SEAL 911 and we've launched SEAL War Games, but we didn't launch the org itself until, you know, a week ago or so. Um, over the last couple of months when 911 has been active, we've gotten quite a few tickets. Uh, we've managed to save what maybe not necessarily safe, but at least help protocols resolve, you know, their incident from the moment they noticed that they were hacked to they sort of wrapped up things in it, whether or not they got the funds back. Uh, and of course, we've helped a lot of individual people who were scammed or had them, who had their wallets drained. I think that's actually something that's really underappreciated is just for a lot of these people, they get scammed or they get trained and it's, they feel very helpless, right? They don't know where to go or what to do. Um, they're just sort of stuck in their little, you know, ice, they're just very isolated. And even if we can't get the funds back, I think there's something about being able to talk to another human being um, about what they just went through and hearing that, you know, at the very least, it, it wasn't just them, right? Like it, it's a very common thing that happens. And, you know, someone is on the other line, must, on, the, on the other end of the line listening. I think that's still really malleable. Of course, since um, CL Lodge, we, we, our volume of tickets has just you know, gone up by an order of magnitude. And so we're still sort of sorting through those new ones and trying to figure out how to improve our workflow to um, to, to adjust for the, the new found attention. And for the hacks that you were able to disrupt or intercept in the last six months, are like what number was there in that time period? Like, I'm curious how frequent it is that these kinds of vulnerabilities are caught. Yeah, so a lot of the stuff we find are, again, observed by these monitoring companies whose job it is to detect these hacks um, in flight and or after they're executed. But understandably, these monitoring companies are not in the business of intercepting these hacks, right? They might observe it happening, but, you know, as legal entities with even more responsibility than, you know, the anonymous white hat, uh, they really can't just go and front run a hack um, without any sort of Again, permission, right? And so the answer to your question is currently we front run maybe a handful of hacks, a very small amount, um, usually from the, the mass searchers in our group. But my hope is that with this White Hat Safe Harbor agreement that we've worked on for the past year, it does empower one of these mass searchers and maybe even other, um, other individuals who have the capability to to intercept these hacks, to actually go and do it, um, provided that you know they have sufficient confidence in their system that they can actually intercept and not make something worse. Yeah, um, honestly, it reminds me of um, in my book when I wrote about the DAO hack and the white hack group trying to figure out how to rescue the funds in the DAO that remained vulnerable. There was this one meeting where, like, some of them chickened out because they were like, "Well." if we're trying to rescue this money, we will also basically do the same exact hack as the hacker did. Um, and so they waited until they noticed other people trying the same exploit. And once they noticed that, then they were like, okay, so now we have a clear reason to rescue these funds. Um, but yeah, they had this like long debate um, initially because they weren't 
they, they just really didn't know what would happen legally to them. Um, one other thing I was curious about is, you know, you mentioned that all the people on the SEAL 911 group have other jobs. So do these workers get paid at all? Or, um, you know, yeah, I, I don't know how, is it all volunteer or how does compensation work? Yeah, it's all volunteer basis right now. Um, if we get a bounty from someone that we've helped, we split it uh, between all the people that participated. There's no seal doesn't you know take a cut of that or anything. Um, but other than that, it is all volunteer. I think, eh, you know, it was working very well when the volume of tickets was low. Uh, if the volume of tickets continues to you know be at this new increased rate now that we've gone live, we might have to either explore. Um, bring more people on the team because I, I think there are also a lot of people who are genuinely interested in volunteering and uh, providing the time to help other people. It's just the number of tickets might be too high for that. And so we can either bring more people into the loop or we can explore some way of, you know, maybe hiring a few full-time triagers. But uh, we haven't gotten that far yet. So only time can tell. All right. So in a moment, we're going to talk more about SEAL War Games and the Safe Harbor Agreement. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Polkadot is the largest layer zero blockchain with over 2,000 developers. And the anticipated Polkadot 2.0 upgrade will be a massive accelerator for the ecosystem. Upgrading the infrastructure with eight times higher transaction throughput and twice as fast block times, perfectly tailored core time for the needs of every protocol, Trustless bridges internally and into Ethereum, Cosmos, Near, and Binance Smart Chain. Revised tokenomics and the implementation of a token burn to reduce inflation. Perfect for GameFi and DeFi to build, grow, and scale with one of the most active crypto communities in the space. Polkadot recently announced a partnership with Mythical Games, bringing top games like NFT Rivals with over 650,000 players and 43 million transactions to pave the way for GameFi and the Polkadot ecosystem. Get your Web3 ideas to market fast with economics that work for you. Think big, build bigger with Polkadot. Join the community at polkadot.network slash ecosystem slash community. DeFi just got way easier with VaultCraft, a blockchain infrastructure for building, deploying, and monetizing non-custodial yield strategies in a few clicks. Forget spending months of R&D, capital, and human resources when you can now instantly launch your crypto fund with VaultCraft on any EVM chain. From wallets and institutional service providers to a non-DeFi DGENs, VaultCraft supercharges your crypto assets by enabling instant cross-chain yield strategies that you can deploy in one minute. Now anyone can supercharge their crypto portfolios with custom-tailored DeFi strategies. Join VaultCraft's referral program, unite with the community, and supercharge your crypto. Details on VaultCraft.io. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Back to my conversation with Sam. So you've alluded to it earlier in the conversation, but you talked about how the Security Alliance also has the SEAL War Games. Tell us what that is. Yeah, so like the name suggests, uh, SEAL War Games is designed around the idea of war games, which is from the, the Web2 security world. And it's basically the, the practice of doing incidents response training, right? It's, it's simulating what might happen in an incident and running to those worst case scenarios and making sure that the people responding uh, know exactly what they're doing, have gone to the motions, uh, are prepared to the real thing. Right. And that's something that we're like really missing in Web3 because for a lot of these protocols, not only do they not have uh, the security engineers on hand to do this in the first place, but even if they do, um, 
they might not have the resources to dedicate to running one of these things, right? It also is very complicated. Um, Isaac has spent so much time uh, building out the infrastructure for running war games, which I'm infinitely grateful for. Um, but it just goes to show how complicated running one of these things is. Of course, that is the benefit of CEO operating it is because if an individual protocol runs one of these, they build all this ruling, they run the exercise, and they're sort of done with it. Um, whereas we can run many of these war games one after the other, and each time we do it, we can refine our processes, open source actually, reuse most of the infrastructure that we build, and it's just much more efficient. And do projects hire you for that? So like all things that CEO is currently done and like they will do in the future, uh, war games is free. And so there's no, you know, there's no fee that processing to pay. There's no expectation of payment. A few of them have talked about making a donation um, after the fact, but, you know, we stress that it's not obligated at all, right? The goal of CEO war games, like with CEO in general, is to, you know, improve the uh, overall security posture of the community. And to do it in a way that doesn't, like we, you know, we don't charge a membership fee and we don't want to charge for any of the things that we do. Okay. And um, are there certain types of situations that you test out? So currently we mainly specialize in spy contract device just because that's the most prevalent. And so, well, you know, when we run a war game, we do it into two parts. And so the first part is sitting down with the protocol and doing what's known as a tabletop exercise. That's where you can basically imagine it as like a security role-playing game, right? Where the we would say, hey, um, let's say hypothetically we do this, what would you do? And the protocol responds, well, we would do X, Y, Z. And we say, okay, you, you just did Y. Now we follow up with A, what do you do, right? And we sort of explore on paper um, how the protocol might respond to various sorts of incidents. From there, we can take that information and uh, design an actual scenario for them, one that we think would test uh, the things that, you know, the protocol is weak on or needs practice in. And then we run one hands-on simulation uh, for one scenario, right? And so that's sort of the, the life cycle of a war game. Well, so now let's talk about the White Hat Safe Harbor um, this, you know, as you mentioned, is um, a way to give the white hat hackers who participate in these rescues a way to know that they're legally covered. And um, I saw, and you know, maybe this isn't how it would work for all of them, but I saw like a diagram discussing how this would work. And the first step is that um, the white hat safe harbor begins with the DAO creating the legal proposal and then voting to adopt it. And I wondered for kind of a potentially fast moving situation like a hack, is there even time for that? Because, you know, some of these DAOs have long voting periods, et cetera. So, um, you know, I didn't know if that's like set in stone or, or how you deal with those kinds of situations. Yeah. So before we get too deep into anything about the safe harbor agreement, I will just disclaim, though I think it's obvious that I'm not a lawyer. And so there are questions which I will just opt out of entirely because I can't speak confidently to the legal side of the thing. Um, but on this question particularly, the answer is, that's actually, you're right that, you know, a lot of these DAOs have long uh, voting processes and time to adopt proposals. And so, you know, if the intent was to have a DAO, you know, grant permission on the spot, then this would be the wrong way to do it. But part of the goal of the safe harbor agreement is to encourage these protocols to stop leaving things to the last minute, right? They should, we want to encourage them to adopt the safe harbor agreement beforehand, um, before they're in, innocent. Not only does that mean that they're granting permission, you know, not last minute, but also I hope um, is the first step towards solving one of the big issues in security today, which is to say protocols get hacked, the, the hacker takes all the money, and now the protocol is negotiating for, you know, 90% of the funds back uh, with the quote-unquote white hat, right? Um, and they'll call the 10% a bounty, or they call it a reward or whatever. But, you know, I, I think most people looking at that situation can recognize that it's not quite legitimate. And I think most security people, if you ask them whether or not they sort of are happy with what's going on, they're going to tell you they're not very happy with that state of things, right? Um, and so the hope is with the safe harbor agreement, um, we remove that need to negotiate 
in the in the moment at all because the protocol will outline ahead of time exactly what they're willing to pay for uh you know the interception of a hack that is ongoing or about to proceed about to start and then if the hack does proceed well the terms are there right and so if you do return the funds great if you don't return the funds the protocol ideally doesn't bother negotiating with the hacker at all and so can you describe a little bit kind of the basic tenets of this safe harbor, like for white hats that want to participate in this kind of um, rescue, like what can they be assured of? Yeah, so the agreement basically is designed to protect both the protocol and the white hat against uh, civil liabilities between each other, right? In other words, those who adopt the agreement agree that if the white hat has taken proper precautions, um, you know, has done their due diligence. I don't remember what the the legal term is, but basically, rep- oh, represents themselves as uh, you know, like a competent white hat who is able to perform these rescues. Um, then the protocol agrees to give them safe harbor, right? Uh, because you know, at the end of the day, we're all human, and so um, in the grand scheme of things, across you know, hundreds of thousands of these rescues, someone is about to make a mistake at some point, and we don't want to discourage white hats from doing anything just because that one incident might cost them, you know, their entire life savings. Um, apart from that, it also sets, uh, it also dictates the terms that the protocol, uh, you know, has outlined for the rewards payout. And so, you know, that means that ahead of time, before the white hat even engages in anything, they know exactly whether or not the protocol is willing to pay, for example, 10% up to a million dollars, or you know, 5% up to two million dollars, or uh, maybe the protocol is saying we actually don't want to pay anything up front. We want anyone who is interested in participating in this agreement to return all the funds to us first. We'll conduct an investigation. Yeah, well perform the instant response. We need to do QIC because we're based in the US. And then after all that, we'll send you Yevo Wide. Um, but regardless of what it is, the protocol, you know, sets up, sets out very clearly what the terms are. And so the white hat knows ahead of time. Um, and I guess the other thing is just the white hat is required to or, you know, um, not required, but you know, ideally would notify the protocol before they present any rescue. Uh, and this is just to make sure that the protocol can differentiate between who is a white hat under the agreement and who is just sort of out there causing chaos, right? Now, I think, <laughs> to be clear, the entire legal document is very long. It's like 45 pages. And so I've definitely only summarized the very high-level points here for more information. Uh, listeners should definitely, if possible, uh, review the whole thing, or at least a human-readable summary. But that is sort of the gist of it, right? It, it is to provide safe harbor to these white hats. And so... For this safe harbor, I wondered, is this something that has some analog in Web 2? Or are the problems that white hat hackers in Web 3 face, are they sort of unique to Web 3 in some respect? There is an analog in Web 2. It, it is also called safe harbor, and it applies in bug bounty programs. And so what almost every major company in Web 2 that has adopted a bug bounty program has said is, if you access our systems, you know, quote unquote, illegally, but you don't cause destructive damage and you report the bug to us without disclosing to anyone else, then we will offer you safe harbor by agreeing not to, you know, try to see you for illegally accessing our systems, right? And that's sort of necessary these days because the anti-abuse laws um, in various countries are so strict against illegal access that Theoretically, any company that you so much as like blink towards in in the wrong way has a right to see you. Um, and so this just makes it very clear that these companies will not see you if you're doing security research, provided you also report it to them. Obviously, in Web3, these are a little different because the the impact of a security vulnerability is so obvious, right? In Web2, you can get hacked and the public might not know for months or years. Uh, but in Web3, you get hacked and the public might know before you do. Um, and so we've had to, you know, adjust the terms of the safe harbor, uh, idea a little bit to accommodate for our industry. And I think that's something that we'll find a lot more in the future is that as we try to adopt these sort of best practices that Web2 has already, you know, long been using, um, the fact that our industry 
is so unique in some ways means that we have to make a few changes here and there to make it make sense, basically. And in December on the chopping block, you said that most reasonable people in crypto have moved on from the notion that code is law. I still see it though. And I wondered, um, you know, what made you think people moved on from that or why it is that you think that that's, you know, probably not something that either should be the case or is the case. It's possible that, you know, only within my close friend, uh, close group of friends, you know, we, we sort of moved on from it. But I do think most of the time on Twitter, when I look at uh, people trying to promote that, uh, that idea, most people that I look up to you or, you know, acknowledge or respect, um, sort of disagree with it. And I think the reason is because at this point, you know, we, that the idea behind Codus Law is essentially trying to almost disclaim responsibility, right? Um, it's, it's sort of a way to say, well, it's not my fault, you know, I can't be held accountable for the consequences of my actions because really it's code's fault, right? It's the developer's fault. Um, they should have known better when they started engaging with a platform like the blockchain, like smart contracts, right? How dare they not, you know, be perfect human beings, uh, and output perfect code, even though no one in Web2 has managed to do that. And I think at this point, we have to acknowledge that humans are not perfect and Totus Lie, as, as I'm familiar with it, is primarily being used as a way for people to shrug off responsibility for their actions, right? Most of the time, those actions being ones that cause damage to either the protocol or users. I think it is true that there are parts of the community that are much more sort of align much more with the original crypto ethos of like, you know, very cypherpunk, very decentralized. Uh, but I think for the sake of adoption, for the sake of making sure that crypto is actually usable um, for people beyond the most technically sophisticated. Uh, we can't do code law anymore. That just doesn't work. So, you know, here we are chatting on this podcast and you're using your avatar. You even have a voice anonymizer on. And I wondered um, generally what all the things are that you do to keep your identity safe. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is just good uh, privacy practices in general, you know, um, don't reuse passwords, don't upload pictures on the internet that you don't have to, because again, those pictures, like the internet never forgets, right? Um, and it's some of it, uh, is a little more out there. I have, um, a few virtual mailing addresses that I use, um, that I've bought from different companies. And so I give those out in lieu of my actual address. Uh, when possible, I use fake names or things, although it has gotten me banned from a handful of services, which think that I'm being, uh, of, Fraudster, which is there. Um, I, I've told people, especially, you know, close friends or founders, um, that if they want advice on how to do sort of like good OPSEC, I'm happy to give it to them. But it really is, I think, uh, a case by case, uh, situation because once you move beyond the basics, right? Which again, use a password manager, uh, you know, make sure that you're using, you're not using SMS to a thing on a con anything. Um, you know, make sure your, uh, make sure instead of 2FA in general, those kind of things. Once you move on from that, it really is specific to your situation. And so, yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of things I do. Um, and some of them, I guess, I, I also am not comfortable sharing. And out of curiosity, do your coworkers at Paradigm know your real identity? Like, have, like, can they recognize you in a crowd? Yeah, yeah, they can. Um, I thought it would be too awkward to uh, wear a helmet um, every day. And so I do, I do meet them the person. Um, although, I don't know. It's, um, I think it's interesting because anonymity is, is like a, a ratchet, right? It only spins one way. And so, you know, there are times where I wonder, you know, what would I feel like if I had gone even more anonymous than I am today? Um, but for now, this is where I'm at, right? Where some people I've met in person, I do meet people IRL at times um, when I know I can trust them. And then other times, especially when it comes to things that will be sort of stored forever on the, on the internet, uh, I try very hard to make sure that I've anonymized it in some way. And, and why is that? Like, is it because you feel that you've offended or, or you know, pissed off so many black hat hackers that they will try to go after you in some fashion? Well, part of it is just precautionary um, because, yeah, like even if I don't 
upset anyone today, uh, I might upset someone two years into the future. And I would be very disappointed in myself if someone two years in the future can pull up, you know, some very personal information about me from today uh, that I hadn't taken the, you know, the, the efforts to analyze in some way. Part of it is also, you know, years ago, when I stopped posting pictures and stopped posting recordings of myself or uh, things like that, part of my fear was essentially, you know, that one day it'd be possible to take samples of someone's likeness and then through some algorithm, you know, generate copies of that. And here we are in 2024 and AI models can do just that, right? You can feed them uh, a bunch of pictures and they can generate more pictures of that person. They can feed them a bunch of voice clips and they can generate more voices of that person. And so... In a way, that that is one scenario where, you know, like my, my quote-unquote worst fears have been realized. You know, am I saying that I'm important enough t- to justify someone taking all that effort to clone my voice and make me say some really bad things? I don't think so. Um, but if ever someone does feel that urge, uh, I feel a little better knowing that the number of clips of me out there, you know, without a voice changer is low enough that I, I think it, it should be fairly difficult. Of course, now that I've said that, I've, I've invited everyone to try it. And so I can only expect that, you know, there will be clips of me saying the dumbest things uh, a week from now. Um, so, you know, given how careful you are with your security and your reputation for finding exploits, um, you know, it's pretty understandable that maybe sometimes you would get a little bit annoyed that other people don't take the same precautions as you. And so I did see that in December you tweeted, getting pretty fucking sick of seeing friends burn out after dedicating all their time to protecting people instead of getting rich. And then half the people on this fucking site can't, which is Twitter, can't even be bothered to remove their phone number so they don't end up spreading the next drainer. And by the way, this again reminds me of the Dow where uh, the White Hats spent like most of their waking hours for months and then like made no money because nobody ever donated to thank them for their help. But anyway, so I was curious, um, you know, if you were to call out certain kind of low hanging fruit security practices that you think aren't being enough, but aren't being practiced enough in crypto, what would those be? I mean, that tweet right there is like the number one low-hanging fruit. Um, so many Twitter accounts getting hacked, spreading these traders. Um, those are real people being affected, right? Um, and if these projects just take the time to go into the Twitter account, just make sure that they don't have SMS 2 va on, that immediately removes any risk of sense-swapping affecting them, right? These days, we're also seeing uh, a large volume of these fake Calendly hacks, um, which is where uh, someone pretending to be a journalist reaches out to you um, and after sort of setting you up with a bait, sends you what seems to be a link to Calendly. uh, But it says, you know, instead of logging in, it says authorized with Twitter. Um, And that authorization involves granting access to the app, which can post on your behalf and do all sorts of other things. Um, And so there's just a lot of these, you know, basic security best practices uh, from the fake Calendly to like the, the fake Discord verification to like the the JavaScript bookmarklet. These are things that are pretty well understood in Web2 that we're just not doing. And once we sort of get rid of all this little hanging fruit, um, hopefully it'll be much harder for these hackers to uh, steal people's funds. Of course, you know, they'll keep innovating, we'll keep innovating in response, but it does sort of feel like right now we're letting some of these very bare basics just sort of go untouched. So instead of SMS to FA, like a text message um, being sent to your phone to, you know, for security, would you then recommend something more like either a YubiKey or Google Authenticator, just like something that's not related to your phone? Yeah, I think anyone in crypto should not be using SMS to FA for anything. Uh, just by being in this industry, you're already at higher risk than the average person. Let's face it, there's you know hundreds of billions of people out there. Uh, scammers need to figure out who is the highest value people to target. Just because you're in crypto, you automatically get sorted into that high value group of people. Um, so yeah, no one should be using SMS 2FA. Google Authenticator is good. Just make sure to turn off the setting that syncs your backup codes to the cloud. Because, and again, this is a case-by-case basis, but you can imagine hypothetically someone might 
uh, have the backup sync enabled and their Google account is their weakened security, right? And so now someone can get into their Google account uh, and then retrieve those backup codes or those authenticator seeds and suddenly get access to the other accounts again. Um, UPKs are also good, but I actually wouldn't recommend those for the average person just because it is a bit of a pain to manage. You know, you have to make sure you have your primary UBT and your backup UBT in case the primary one dies. And then you have to store your backup one in a safe place, except you also need to register with any new sites that you go to, but you have the rights to get backup. So it is just a bit of a hassle. Um, I think app-based authenticators are good enough for most people. So because auditing smart contracts is expensive, what recommendations would you have for projects that care about security, but also you know, are on a budget and maybe can't afford to have an audit very regularly? That's a really good question. I mean, I think part of the problem here is basically there are many good resources for developers who want to either, you know, do the right thing uh, to, to prepare themselves, prepare the code base before an audit or even, you know, independent of the audit or to level up and learn more about security, right? And that's one of the things that uh, I want to try and solve in the future with SEAL is to provide those resources so that we can reduce the the load bearing factor on auditing as like the the primary way to make sure that your code base is secure. I think the other thing is there are also audit contests, right? And so those are, I think, typically a little cheaper than traditional audits. And so that might be a good way for a project who wants to get an audit, has some amount of money to spend on an audit, but maybe not enough for like a tier one auditor. Uh, they can consider trying a contest instead. So, you know, blockchain technology is continuing to develop in so many different ways with all these layer twos happening, now layer threes, we're even seeing layer twos on Bitcoin. Like there's, it's really, um, you know, we're seeing smart contracts come to Bitcoin, like it's kind of all over the map. And so I wondered what developments, what developments in crypto are making you worried about um, kind of the potential surface attack area that they create for hackers? I think bridges are always scary. I think anything that involves an off-chain to R2 component is scary. And anything that requires proving or, you know, I I think that, that, I guess that is an off-chain on-chain component, right? It's like trying to prove something happened in one place to another place. Uh, that usually involves a very complex code. You need to parse the proof. You need to parse the data. You need to validate the proof. Um, and then that proof probably gates some very critical action, right? Like unlocking a bunch of funds. And so I think at the end of the day, I still just basically ended up discovering bridges and other bridge-like things. Um, I think those will continue to be really scary for me. So I imagine that the Security Alliance is just, you know, one of the initial steps toward a more secure world in crypto. But I wondered you know, where you thought this could go, like in 10 or 20 years, what other kind of institutions or standards or, you know, whatever do you think might be implemented that would make crypto even more secure? I mean, 10 to 20 years out, it's like multiple lifetimes in crypto. I really don't know okay, if, I five can, years. if I can predict that far ahead. <laughs> I think, yeah, on a shorter time horizon, part of the reasoning behind the security alliance, like I said earlier, is that a lot of people, you know, myself included, know what needs to happen. Um, no, I, I, whether it's a safe harbor agreement or what the, the war gains or anything else, these are things that, you know, people in Web2 have sort of dealt and developed over the past decades, right? They have so many more years of experience on us. And as just like, just like a, like a tissue off wine, I think we should just start adopting as many of those best practices as we can, right? And so what, I really want to focus on with the security alliance right now is just let's bring the bar up, right? We have so many good things we can take inspiration or straight up poppy from in Web2 that we just haven't done. And mostly because it takes a lot of effort to organize uh, adopting those things. It takes a lot of effort to get the ball rolling. And I'm hopeful that the security alliance is the way to get that, um, to get that process started. All right, Sam. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. Is there anything I have not asked you that you think listeners should know? No, you've really hit uh you've really hit all the all the topics. All right. Well, thank you so much. Where can people learn more about you and the Security Alliance? Yeah, to learn more about the Security Alliance, uh we have a website, securityalliance.org, um, where we have uh some information about the initiatives that we we've released. 
If you have any other questions beyond that, I'm always available on Telegram uh, at SamCCSun. Perfect. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on Unchained. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Sam and the Security Alliance, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Nelson Wong, Matt Pilchard, Juan Urbanovich, Megan Gavis, Shashank, and Mark Akuria. Thanks for listening. Unchained is now a part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. For the latest in digital assets, check out Markets Daily, five days a week, with host Noel Atchison. Follow the Coindesk Podcast Network for some of the best shows in crypto.